It's an interesting text to open up with. Um, Thank you, Mark. Interesting text to open up with. It's the word of the Lord, though, and it, it still bears reading. While you're grabbing your Bibles and turning them to Exodus 21 for today, we're going to cover quite a bit of ground, but we're going to look at God's character and nature throughout it. I need rules, said no one ever, stranded on a desert island, of course, all alone. The problem is we like rules once people start getting involved because when people get in our way, well, people are people. Yes. In the preface to his book, The Ten Laws of Love Set in Stone, author John writes this. Barely 300 words long in English, the Ten Commandments form the foundation of our legal system. They're enshrined in the heart of our parliamentary structures. They lie at the very core of Western civilization. In words so brief that they would only take a palm-sized piece of text in a newspaper... Only a third of the room knows what that is. Uh, This great arc of divine law encompasses, watch this, in the Ten Commandments, family rights, property rights, the rights of the individual, and even the rights of God. Someone once said that humans are such able creatures that we have made more than 32 million laws and still haven't been able to improve on the Ten Commandments. This week on the podcast, The World and Everything in It, which I highly commend to you. I've done it multiple times. There's a link in our church app uh, to get to that. Joel Belts, who is a writer and editor of World Magazine, commented on that very thing this week. Listen to what he says. God's rules tend to be few, simple, non-contradictory, and sufficient to stand the test of time without constant updating. Man's laws, even when they're well-intended, tend to be complex, lengthy, repetitive, full of contradictions, and constantly in need of revision and amendment. A major reason for this difference may be that we, unlike God, have limited power and look to the law, watch this, as a means of controlling other people's behavior. God, meanwhile, uses his law not so much to control us, but to teach us his wisdom. So here we are, just a few moments and a few verses away from the Ten Commandments, and we're getting into some of the nuanced rules that are very specific, they're meaningful, and I submit to you to this Israelite tribe that's there, they were life-giving Though we may struggle on the surface level to apply them today when we read a passage like we just read or we're going to find out about digging a hole and an ox falling into it. I'm sure many of you dealt with that this morning on your way to church. And there's some various things this morning you're going like, oh, just hang with me for a few moments. We're going to look at part two of this kind of loving God and loving others thought. We could easily subtitle today's message, Loving Others in a Broken World. In Exodus, God forms a people to display his glory. He teaches them how to live in community with one another. I've told you that a few times. Your homework this week is to read the entire passage 
Use the notes from today's sermon and other notes from commentaries that you like and appreciate to help guide you through the text. But I want to give you a summary guiding text for us as we navigate this, and we're going to read it together. You can remain seated, but I want to put Micah 6.8 on the screen, and I want us to read it together out loud. It'll help frame the big picture of where we're heading today. Ready? Let's read it together. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. In what one writer describes as a slow jog through these chapters, we come across some interesting passages. You must not boil a young goat in his mother's milk. I'm sure, again, immediately applicable to everyone in the room this morning. But there are also some very hot-button cultural issues that we're going to touch today, like premarital sex and the death penalty and slavery and orphan care and lawsuits and fistfights and property and the poor and loving our enemies. Not so foreign, is it? As you read the Bible, you'll come to sections like this and you'll wonder how to rightly divide the word of truth. How do I rightly divide this word of truth, remembering that even though there are some tough parts of Scripture The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. I spoke with a young man by that pew last week on the way out of church, and here's what he said. He was excited. He was enlivened in how rewarding in his personal reading and study in Leviticus was in recent days. I said, you okay, brother? No, just kidding. Leviticus, why? Why would that be rewarding? Listen, listen to me. When you're in love with the author, the text takes on a new meaning. This morning, we're going to navigate this text as carefully as we can. We won't spend time hitting every nuanced law here in this covenant. But we will navigate some of the principles we see here. I've spent a lot of time in personal reading and cross-referencing and study and all these great things. But here's some summaries that I think will help us navigate the passage. A few things we can remember together. Number one, this is a different historical culture. This is a different historical culture. You are not looking at... Um, America a few years ago when we read this passage. You're not looking at what we would define as recent history. This is a different historical culture. Number two, it's a different redemptive moment. This is Israel just outside of Egypt, about 50-some days on the side of their deliverance. The covenant confirmed in Exodus 24, and we're not even there yet, is not even the covenant under which we live today. So this is a different point in redemptive history. And then your logical question is, Pastor, why are you preaching it on Sunday morning if it's a different historical context and a different side of redemption? Here's why. Because God's character is revealed in his law. And this makes study of Scripture relevant. We should seek to learn what these laws mean, what they meant to Israel at the time, and make responsible, Christ-centered application, new covenant application for us today. Enough preamble. Let's dive into the text. You've got your Bibles there. I won't be putting a lot of verses on the screen, but we'll navigate it together with Bibles open. The first header 
We're going to look at some laws concerning slaves, and here's the header I have for you. God protects the vulnerable. God protects the vulnerable. If you look at verses 1 through 11, specifically, if you'll just glance at your Bible, we'll leave that header up for a moment so you can take that note, and look at verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. Some of the Bible translations render that servant, bondservant. It's actually all are good renderings. Slave has a understandably terribly negative connotation because of the dark history of this nation and other Western nations regarding that. Because when we hear the word slavery, we think of the Civil War, we think of everything that led up to it, but there are crucial differences between this and that. This is important for you to know, right, as you navigate the Bible. Uh, most people in this age ran small businesses. Most families ran small family businesses. And their slaves or servants were more like simple contract workers or employees in the business. They lived at their master's place. They were basically there to pay out a debt. This type of servitude was voluntary. Later in the text, God condemns involuntary slavery. It's right there. We read it. Actually, Pastor Norm read it for us just a few moments ago. Voluntary, this is what it is. People would hire themselves into the service of others, often because of debt. They worked hard in exchange for room, board, and an honest wage. Involuntary slavery was forbidden. I've already said that, but it's important to remember that. The Bible contains, the Bible, the Word of God, contained the seeds that would eventually lead to the formal abolition of slave trade as we know it. In the meantime, the Bible, if you follow the Bible, it ensures those serving are well treated. I say that, uh, just as a side note here, it's not in my notes, but I talk about the abolition of slavery, and certainly from the law books, we're grateful for that, but you need to be aware that there are more people in slavery today than have been. It's, it's a wicked, wicked world because there are wicked people in this world. We, we talk a lot of culture and the world and things like that, but it's made up of people that have just declared open rebellion to God and treat other people as property to be sold for the pleasure of others. There's an accommodation in these laws to the realities of life. That's the reason I said we could title today's message Loving Others in a Broken World. God here is making sure that the slaves, the servants, are cared for and that Israel doesn't fall prey to what other cultures around them are doing, which is treating them like they are less than human. That was already starting in the Canaanite culture, other Mesopotamian region cultures around them. The Israelites were to be marked and different, and God's people today still ought to be marked as different in the way we treat others. God even preserves the sanctity of family through here. Look at verse three. If he comes in single, he'll go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife will go out with him. God is gracious, and he wanted his people to treat one another with the same kind of grace that they had received when they were delivered from Egypt, and they went out loaded with silver and gold. There's a distinction between what this is going on here and the slavery that we know historically. 
Now, regarding the females mentioned in verse 7, let's skip to verse 7. Again, there's some tough passages in here. Dads of daughters, brace yourself. This one's even hard to read out loud. You ready? Verse 7, look in your Bible. It says, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. You read that and you're going, <gasps> what? Right? But again, I told you this is a different situation, different historical context. It's difficult still, even knowing that, for us to wrap our minds around that in the 21st century. But here's the deal. There's a cultural reality here that would suggest the father's not trying to get rid of the daughter. He's trying to get her into a wealthier family for her, her marriage opportunity. He's trying to help improve her prospects for long-term family health, depending on their situation. When you read the text, here's what you find. God is protecting, watch this, the woman in ways he does not protect the man. He's looking out for the woman in these ways. Here are three ways. If you read this in your homework, you'll find that God's protecting. If it doesn't work out, the family could ransom her. She could not be sold to foreigners. The man could. There was nothing prohibiting the man from doing that. Number two, if she became engaged to one of the sons of the family, she was to be treated as a daughter and would have full rights as a free citizen. Number three, if the engagement ended, the man had the duty of providing for her every need. That's preferential treatment is what that is in that situation. And this is in God's law. Can I just say something in this crazy culture that we live in if you actually follow the line of scripture all throughout the new testament you'll see that god very much cares for women god still cares for ladies physically and emotionally and expects men real men to defend them and to treat them lovingly and justly if you look at jesus interaction with the women he encountered you find a great model for how to treat women we move on out of this now into our second header. We see God protecting the vulnerable and now laws concerning behavior. We find that God promotes righteous conduct. God promotes righteous conduct. There are a lot of ways you could have worded this. Many of you will come up with better ways. I'm open, shoot me an email. But God is essentially saying, I need you to behave in a way that justice can flourish. I need you to behave in a way that justice can flourish. Verses 12 through 14 deal with intentional versus accidental homicides. Why would you bring that up? Hang with me for a few minutes because at this point, if somebody asks, what did your pastor talk about today? You're like, I'm not even sure. Um, intentional versus accidental homicides. Do you understand that Israel was the first to ever make that distinction in the cultures of the day? The others would not consider intent. God here is saying, listen, if it's an intentional homicide, capital punishment must be rendered. If it's an accidental homicide, there is mercy available. We see mercy and justice wrapped up together here beautifully. The whole of verses 12 through 17 really underscore the sanctity of life and we being made in the image of God, recognizing that others our fellow image bearers as well. I say that fully recognizing that capital punishment was just mentioned and just flowed off of these lips. And it may seem harsh, but human life is so valuable and honoring family is so vital and purity in worship is so essential that it calls for the ultimate payment for transgression. 
Why? Because of our ability to influence others to do the same. It's God's view here. Just a word here on the gravity of honoring one's parents. It was in the passage that we read. Look at verse uh, 15, if you will, and verse 17 in your text. Exodus 21, 15. Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. What's described here as a way of attacking parents? This is not a minor slap in view, but a serious attack with the intent to kill. Perhaps it's a, as Stuart exercises in his commentary, a beatdown. In verse 17, this is not a one time I flew off the handle and said something I regret. No, this is a rage and rebellion and rejection of authority and failure to care for them. Jesus understands how important it is for us to care for our parents because he called the Pharisees out on it in Matthew 15. There's a passage there in verses 3 through 6. Make a little note in the margin of your Bible right here, Matthew 15, as, uh, as Pastor D would do, pull that pen out, right in the margin there, Matthew 15, 3 through 6. Later, go read that account with Jesus and the Pharisees where he, he calls them out for not caring for their parents while playing the part of a hypocrite. The bottom line is this when you read this. Honor and care for your parents like your life depends on it, even if the situation is less than ideal. And can we admit in this room, for most of us, the situation is probably less than ideal. What's required then when there are life-threatening or permanent injuries? God deals with that in verses 18 through 27. It's a fast summary, I know. We're seeing the principles and the character of God illustrated here. Look at verse uh, 23 through 25 with me. Exodus 21, 23 through 25. God requires care for the injured in a way that's appropriate. In verses 23 through 25, look at what it says. But if there's harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, we all kind of know that. Some of us get our, we're like, yeah, that's right, an eye for an eye. We all know that part of the verse. Like, I think just behind John 3, 16, probably the most known passage of Scripture is an eye for an eye. Couldn't find it. Don't know where it is. Here it is, if you're wondering where it was. Uh, it's the Bible's lex talionis. It's the laws of retaliation. And it may sound barbaric, but it's actually merciful. You're like, come on, you're stretching now. No, you've got to understand what was going on in the day. You see, in the earliest known collection of laws, monetary fines. People had to pay money when they broke laws. In laws where people caused bodily injury or assault, you had to pay a fine. Well, you pay the fine to the court. You paid it to the individual as well. The weakness of this, of course, is what? People that have lots of money could buy justice. Boy, that has no application today. This is just so far in an old school, I can't imagine. The law of Talion, this law of retaliation here, this law of restitution, if you will, we'll get to that in a moment too, removes all such discrepancies by ensuring the punishment should be no less and no more than the crime demands. These laws didn't allow the rich to buy their way out of criminal penalties. 
which continues to be a problem today. The powerful have often been able to escape justice, but not under God's law. Finally, on this section where we see God giving us and wanting us to have a conduct that enables justice, uh, we see some injuries caused (laughs) from an ox. Yep, I told you we were going to get there, didn't I? Look at verse 28 with me. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. Okay, I know what you're thinking. You come to a text like this in your daily reading, and you're like, what? Moving on. If it's a scroll, you scroll past it, you hit the fast forward button, I get it. But everybody farmed in the day. It's an agrarian society. People farmed in the ancient worlds. Law had to be put in place, had to be put in place concerning animals. If this were written today, it'd probably be about our cars or something of that in. Most of us don't own bulls. <laughs> so in this sense, it seems irrelevant, but the law here is expressing something that is timeless. Watch this. Just careful study and reading and slowing down. Here's what you can deduce. Ready? Accidents happen. Accidents happen. I shouldn't blame somebody if they accidentally harm me. Accidents happen. Another great lesson we learned here is this. If I can anticipate an accident, then I should take steps to prevent it. Now, I know you didn't think you'd get a life lesson from an ox on Sunday morning at Grace Covenant. But it's not difficult to distill timeless truths and universal laws when you just slow down and get into the word so the word can get into you. We see God's protection for the lowest rung of society, those that had to put themselves in a position of servanthood to repay debts. We see God promoting righteous conduct among his people so that this broken world could see justice. Thirdly, this morning, we see that God provides for the wronged. God provides for the wrongs. We see the laws of restitution here. What happens when people get ripped off? I'll be brief on this one. They're exhaustive in some examples here that are quite interesting reading for you when you get home. What happens though when somebody gets ripped off? Well, here's the Bible way to solve it. The offenders have to deal face to face with the offended. Now, wouldn't that solve a lot of problems today? If we would deal with our problems face to face, instead of Facebooking and statusing and bleeding all over social media before we actually deal with the problem. The amount was related to the crime, but in multiple values of the loss. When you read the laws concerning restitution, you'll realize how sensible they are. But if you're just plowing through a Bible reading plan and you hit this passage, you're like, this is obsolete. We don't do this anymore. This no longer applies. Can I skip this? And the answer that Paul would give you from Romans is no. Paul writes, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have, watch this, hope. Hope? Exodus 21 and 22, hope? Yeah, hope for a God that's concerned with his people. Think about this. Can you put on your New Testament thinking cap with me? I'll give you a hint. In the Synoptic Gospels, put that cap on and think through. Is there an example in the New Testament of somebody who came to Jesus, had his life transformed, and realized that he had been ripping people off and then decided to 
restore them, the offended parties, multiplied times. It came up in our reading in family worship this week in Luke as we're working through Luke. And the tune of it goes like this. Hmm, 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 was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Nobody. Zacchaeus. He climbed up in that sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. I got to finish it. It's my sickness that I have. I can't just stop it and start it. Bethany got to taste that earlier this morning. And as the Savior passed that day, he looked up in that tree and said, Zacchaeus, come down from there because I'm going to your house today. Zacchaeus, when he realized he had come to encounter the living God and been transformed by the power of God, said, whatever I've taken unfairly, I'll restore fourfold. I wonder where he got that from, the law of God. This is what loving God and loving Christ look like in a broken world. We don't intentionally do harm, but when we do, we confess, we repent, and we do our part to repair the breach. What a loving God that protects the vulnerable. What a loving God that would set us up to live in a way that justice can flourish. What a loving God that restores and provides for the wrong. And finally, what an awesome loving God that points his people to purity. Parents in the room, if you've read ahead, I'm not going to name too much in detail what's in the following things. You can do that appropriately at home. But as we look at the final four verses of our text this morning, I do want you to look there. In Exodus, uh, here we see it in verses, uh, chapter 22, verses 16 through 20. We're going to see the Lord dealing with sexual purity. I'll make a few comments on this. The remaining three that are worthy of the capital punishment we mentioned early. And then we'll summarize this and come down to application for us today. The consequence of premarital sex was huge. Look at that first words of there. If a man seduces a virgin, the language here involves seduction and manipulation toward the physical act. The Bible is showing us here that anyone who committed this sin violated the purity of a fellow image bearer showing blatant disregard for their worth and I'm telling you it holds true today. We live in a morally bankrupt culture where more money is spent on pornography than on pro basketball, football, and baseball combined and we love our sports in this nation. Premarital sex and cohabitation are so commonplace now that few people think about modesty and honor ever. But God does. And God's people should. He's calling us to live pure, chaste, and different lives than those outside of the living God. If you look at verses 18 through 20, I would summarize those as spiritual purity. We see sexual purity and spiritual purity. Really, verses 18 through 20 are connected to sexual purity. There's some pretty incredible things mentioned there that we would have to talk about witchcraft and bestiality and idolatry. They're so ungodly, they're almost embarrassing to mention on a Sunday morning. So let me address them this way. Dabbling in the occult has become so common that most Americans and Westerners hardly notice it. In fact, it's being infused into our children's entertainment at record levels. Oh, yeah, yeah, just watch it. I'm sure it's fine. It's not. It's not fine. 
rude and crude jokes around perversion show that our tolerance for the abominable is unacceptable with our Bibles open. I'll leave it at that. And though most Westerners don't offer sacrifices to pagan gods, more and more are worshiping idols. Here's the summary, the antidote for that. Let's see this good God and his character. What does God tell us about his character when we look at these laws? Here we go, ready? God is sovereign and good. So we must not mix with lovers of dark powers. When we think about spiritual purity here, this last point, calling us to live pure. Because God is good, we associate with good things. And we don't invite darkness into our lives. We know that men love darkness rather than life, but we are walking in the light. Second lesson, God is holy and pure, so we don't behave like animals. Just walking back across the street at South and East this week, there were two young ladies that walked up beside me. A car goes by, a man rolls down his window and yells, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm not a snowflake up here. If you've been around me, you know better. But nothing short of sexual harassment toward these two ladies that were standing there on that street corner. I don't know how else to say it cat calls. That's what men do. That's not what men of God do. That's not what men do. That's what males that act like animals do. And I turned to those ladies and I said, I'm sorry. That's not the way God intended for men to act. And they went, I thought I had an arm growing out of my head, right? I quickly ducked in. I'm sure they watched me go into the church and thought, oh, okay. He's crazy, but at least he goes to church. I don't know. That's not the way men act. We don't act like animals. The last lesson here on that purity thing is this. This, this God, the God of this Bible is the only true God. We don't worship anybody else. We don't give our affection, our time, our talent, our treasures to anything that would move God off of his throne in our hearts. Why? Because he's the God who protects the vulnerable. He's the God who promotes right justice. He's the God who provides for the wrong. He's the God who points his people to purity so the world can see him. We love others in this broken world the same way that Israel was instructed to, except for us sitting in Grace Covenant Church in 2021. We do it on this side of the new covenant, on this side of a crucified and resurrected king, on this side of the promises of God, and we do it by His Spirit with the mind of Christ being made new as we get into the Word. Joe Bells finished up that piece this week that he wrote, and here's what he said, God wants us to apply our hearts to the task of wisdom. Yes, He wants compliance, but think about it. He's God. He could make us comply anytime He wanted to. What He wants more for us is that our remade hearts think their way through, and then desire fervently to live the way of life he's designed for us. No legal library in the world has shelves big enough for all the books it would take to spell out the simple truths that God has written on our hearts. Would you say that verse with me again from Micah 6, 8? It's a good summary. It's a good 
wrapping it all together kind of verse. What's all this about? Here it is. He has told you, old man, say it with me, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's stand together as the musicians are coming this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, you are the God who protects, promotes your causes and your kingdom, provides for us. I think about providing for the wronged, God. Even the wronged are still sinners in need of a Savior. We who stand in need of so much, thank you for pointing us to the purest and the holiest in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope that we have to live well is not to try to obey and comply with the law, but to let you live through us. We need a world impacted by men and women of God who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Lord, this broken and dark world needs the light of the gospel and the wholeness that only the church can bring. Fill us. Send us as we protect, promote, provide, and point others to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and the church said, amen.